Hello, my fellow philosophers and free spirits and Nietzscheans and curious souls and everyone else out there listening. Uh, this is Keegan, and you're listening to the Nietzsche podcast. And this is the very first episode. And so I'd like to begin the first episode by asking a, a somewhat subjective question, the answer to which will almost certainly be a matter of opinion and different for everyone. But that is, what is it that makes a philosopher memorable? Why, why do we rank some among the great philosophers and not others? What is the deciding factor? Obviously, there will be a host of factors at play, but which is the most important, if any? Again, it is almost certain that any answer would be speculation, but it is fun to speculate. And so that's what we're going to do at the very beginning of the first uh, Nietzsche podcast. And so, you know, in some cases, the answer may seem forthcoming rather immediately. Socrates, for example, he's often considered the father of Western philosophy. Uh, the reason why he's considered the father of Western philosophy is because he famously challenged all of the presumptions of Athenian society when it came to ethics, uh, religion, politics, and so on. And then Socrates achieved widespread notoriety through Plato, his student. And then, of course, Plato's student Aristotle was a teacher of Alexander the Great, one of the most important leaders and empire builders in Western history. And so, as Whitehead has said, all philosophy is more or less a footnote to Plato, because his work elucidates all the major philosophical issues. He writes, it's, you know, it's, it's an inexhaustible mine of suggestion. Or, you know, we might look instead to Descartes, who is considered important because he, he wrote at the very beginning of the Enlightenment. You know, he was a scientist, he was a mathematician, he studied theology. He was the portrait of a, a Renaissance man. And um, as Schopenhauer put it, Descartes initiated a new era in philosophy because he got men to employ reason, whereas before, um, you know, revelation from the church or the received wisdom of the Aristotelians had remained dogmatically unquestioned. And what we glean when we look through the history of these great philosophers is that what separates them from the more minor figures is that they are said to have inaugurated a, a new way of thinking, a re-evaluation of the past terms of the discussion. They call out the old dogmas, they introduce new terms, new binaries, new ideas, new methods. And occasionally a philosopher comes along that does this so completely and totally that we call them a great philosopher and mark them as standing at the transition from one era of philosophy to another. And that brings us now to Friedrich Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher who lived from the years 1844 to 1900. And Nietzsche has seen more popularity in recent years, from all appearances anyway. It's almost impossible for me to, to say what's going on in the academy, because I'm not part of the academy. And, uh, you know, I also think that academic philosophy is largely irrelevant to how philosophy is engaged with by the public at large. And, you know, while in past ages the public at large didn't engage much with philosophy at all, now with modern technology and modern education, that's what we're all doing right now in this podcast. And so the barometers I would use would be online discourse, you know, to determine who is a really a popular philosopher, in which Nietzsche is now more popular than ever. And I've seen an, an explosion of Nietzsche-related videos on YouTube, for example. 
And the sad thing is, a lot of them grossly misrepresent Nietzsche, I'm sorry to say, or oversimplify him to the point of actually being wrong. Um, you know, as of the time of this podcast, on the Wikipedia page for philosophy, just philosophy, the topic of philosophy in general, the three figures that are featured on that page to represent Western philosophy, um, you know, there are six portraits overall, and, uh, you know, three represent Eastern philosophy, three represent Western philosophy, and the three they pick to represent Western philosophy are Plato, Kant, and Nietzsche. So Nietzsche has seen an increased amount of importance in recent years, but when he was alive, he was a rather obscure figure. In the decades after his death, he wasn't recognized as one of the great philosophers. In fact, it would take a half century or more before people really began to even read Nietzsche in wide numbers in like Western universities or in English in, in any wide numbers. And this brings us back to where I began in this episode with the question of why. Why is Nietzsche now seen as one of the great philosophers. Now, I have my ideas as to why Nietzsche is so significant, and you will, you will get more of them as the podcast continues. But in this first episode, I thought very long and hard about how to introduce Nietzsche. So why do, why do people find that Nietzsche resonates with them? For many people, it's the big ideas. The death of God, the eternal recurrence of the same events, the will to power, the Ubermensch. But none of these are very good ideas to begin with, in my opinion, because they require such a background of knowledge in Nietzsche's work. And besides, in my case, it really wasn't any of those ideas that roped me into Nietzsche. For some others, maybe it is Nietzsche's um, style. You know, it is, it's often remarked that Nietzsche's style is more readable than most other philosophers. It's far from dry. Um, it's, in fact, very free-flowing at times. And it's, he's shocking and provocative at others. And he's often deeply relatable to many people. Aside from the style, we could simply dive into Nietzsche's work. Um, you know, that might be another way to structure the podcast, just simply go through his books methodically. But I don't consider this a good solution either because, I mean, it, it's quite easy for the audience to do that themselves by simply reading the books. And, um, I mean, we might do something like that where we go into a book in depth, um, but there's no really definitive order to read the books of Nietzsche in because the chronological order in which they are published, I don't think would really make sense as an introduction to Nietzsche and his significance. And so eventually I concluded I should simply discuss what it is about Nietzsche um, that I found compelling, that resonated with me and all the Nietzsche fanatics. We all have our own reasons why Nietzsche became our favorite. And so for the first episode, rather than any of those other possibilities I've mentioned, which you may have heard of and may sort of introduce like how there's so many different angles on Nietzsche out there and so many things that people are attracted to about him. But I'm going to talk about what I see as the importance. And this is, this can be explained in a single passage from the book, Twilight of Idols. Although I will draw upon a few other books as we get into discussing the passage. Um, the passage is called How the True World Finally Became a Fable. And the subtitle is The History of an Error. The significance of the passage is that Nietzsche gives what is essentially a history of a certain philosophical idea. And he does it with incredible brevity, which I will ruin by unpacking or unfolding every single statement he makes. <laughs> but uh, he ultimately argues that 
this idea was an error and that we should get rid of this idea. And that idea, in short, is metaphysics. What do I mean by metaphysics? Well, the term dates back to Aristotle. Um, from my knowledge, it was not used by Aristotle. It actually refers to a section in his work that is contained after the section on physics, hence metaphysics. Um, you know, that comes from Greek or Latin, I believe, um, where he talks about first principles, basically. Um, a more common term among philosophers of both antiquity and the Enlightenment philosophers is first philosophy. Descartes' famous tract in which he says, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, is called Meditations on First Philosophy. It is Descartes' attempt to find an indubitable position in logic, that is to say, an assertion which cannot be doubted. Descartes applies this so-called methodology of doubt to every belief he has, which many people just take for granted, but he finds he can doubt more or less everything, uh, except for the fact that he exists, because he knows he exists, because he thinks. And so the point here is what Descartes was doing was looking for a rationalist metaphysics, a first philosophy, as he says in the title, a solid foundation of first principles of thinking that he can then use to build upon. Another term we might associate with metaphysics is epistemology. You can sort of break metaphysics into epistemology, which is the study of philosophy of how we know what we know. And then, you know, another way of, of or another topic in metaphysics is ontology, which is making statements about being, being itself, existence itself. We can characterize much of the philosophical discourse in the Western world, certainly starting from Descartes as preoccupied with this question of epistemology or how we know what we know. For, for hundreds of years, they were preoccupied with this. And there were a number of important figures in the dialogue, but perhaps the most important um, is Immanuel Kant, one of those other three philosophers featured at the top of Wikipedia's philosophy page. I've talked briefly about Plato, and obviously the whole podcast is about Nietzsche, but we should briefly introduce Kant. The common narrative around Kant is that Kant perceived that the old assumptions about metaphysics were primarily derived from revelation, that is to say, from re religious teaching, and rather than coming from reason. And Kant wished to reconstruct that metaphysics from reason alone, because Kant is a philosopher who believes deeply in human reason, but of course he wanted to figure out what the limits of human reason were, and how describe how we use the tool of human reason. And everything we do as human beings in the Kantian perspective is based directly or indirectly on our metaphysics. And so I will quote Kant here. He said, quote, that the human mind will ever give up metaphysical research is as little to be expected as that we should prefer to give up breathing altogether to avoid inhaling impure air. There will therefore always be metaphysics in the world. Nay, everyone, especially every man of reflection will have it. And for want of a recognized standard will shape it for himself after his own pattern. So we might recognize here what one of those influenced by Kant, who was the later philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, he called this the metaphysical need, which he said is part and parcel with the, the religious need of mankind. It's the desire to do first philosophy, to ask the questions such as, what is the true nature of reality? It's, it's so deep within the Western philosophers that they began to see it as a basic human need. And perhaps there is some truth to this 
you know, that everyone, at least from time to time, when they're unable to sleep on some lonely night, you know, they found themselves asking the quote unquote deep questions. And indeed, one could argue that the drive toward religion is evidence of this. The need for an explanation of reality, of why things are the way they are, why the world exists at all, why mankind exists, what his purpose is, and so on. Now, along comes Nietzsche. And Nietzsche, to put it very simply, is the first truly atheistic philosopher. He does not simply reject the idea of God, but rather he rejects the idea of metaphysics as such. He rejects the practice of first philosophy. And he argues that none of our epistemological arguments have ever gotten us any closer to any secret truths about the world that are not already immediately apparent to us. Perhaps most important to understand in the context of this discussion is the high stakes of this position, because here Nietzsche agrees with figures like Kant that without metaphysics, um, we, you know, morality itself is on shaky ground, perhaps even non-existent ground. And this is where Nietzsche would differ from the, the new atheists and modern secular thinkers. Nietzsche agrees that every ethic demands a metaphysical grounding. Um, you know, in the past, morality was based on the divine commands of an all-powerful God, and thus morality came from a transcendent source, which is in some sense unquestionable. Nietzsche argues that once this transcendent understanding of our morality is undermined, all moral claims are called into question. Um, you know, moral values are like the branches on a tree, and metaphysics is the trunk. You know, you hack away at the trunk until the whole thing collapses, but the, the branches cannot live either afterward. And so Nietzsche, I, I say that he is the first truly atheistic philosopher because he does not try to argue for Christian values from an atheistic perspective or to capitulate to the Christian morality while failing to see the contradiction of removing the Christian metaphysics. Rather, Nietzsche believes that metaphysics as a whole was an error was an imposition on the real world, and that therefore we must move beyond this error and correct it. In effect, we cannot go back to the Christian morality. It is not a question of whether going back to the old metaphysical beliefs is desirable, because once we do not find such beliefs believable anymore, going back is simply not possible. And thus Nietzsche reverses the wisdom that there is a metaphysical need, which had developed over all these centuries of philosophical debate. In fact, a hallmark of Nietzsche's method is his relativism, which means in straightforward terms that he often sees the mark of a philosopher's own time and place in that philosopher's writings, which is to say that philosophers often take the beliefs, the observations, the, the evaluations that are relevant to them and seem true in their own time and apply them to the entirety of humanity. They universalize these values. In the book Human All Too Human, near the very beginning of the book, actually, Nietzsche calls this the congenital defe defect of all philosophers. So where Kant and Schopenhauer saw a universal need, Nietzsche says, maybe this metaphysical need is not inherent in mankind, but learned. Mankind learned this over long centuries of enculturation and a dependency on the cultural ideas of Christianity. Perhaps there's a way of living without metaphysics. And to understand how such a thing could come about, Nietzsche shows us in this passage uh, how the true world finally became a fable. 
He shows us the history of the error of metaphysics. Because if it is a temporal thing, a phenomenon with a beginning and a progression, and perhaps it could have an end. And just as we had a pre-metaphysical period for humankind before people began to ask these philosophical questions, before we opened the Pandora's box, or Socrates opened the Pandora's box um, by, by innovating the field of philosophy, maybe we could also have, after all of that, a post-metaphysical period for humankind. So now we will get into the passage that I've been building up. This passage is broken up into six parts, and so we're going to read it part by part, and I will elaborate exactly on what each part means. But first, um, I will just simply read the entire passage. How the true world finally became a fable. The history of an error. One. The true world attainable for a man who is wise, pious, virtuous. He lives in it. He is it. Oldest form of the idea. Relatively coherent, simple, convincing. Paraphrase of the proposition, I, Plato, am the truth. 2. The true world, unattainable for now, but promised to the man who is wise, pious, virtuous, to the sinner who repents. Progress of the idea. It gets trickier, subtler, less comprehensible, it becomes female. It becomes Christian. Three. The true world, unattainable, unprovable, unpromisable, but the very thought of it a consolation, an obligation, an imperative. Basically, the old sun, but through fog and skepticism. The idea becomes elusive, pale, Nordic, Konigsbergian. 4. The true world, unattainable, at any rate, unattained, and as unattained, also unknown, consequently not consoling, redeeming, obligating either. How could we have obligations to something unknown? Gray morning, first yawn of reason, cockrow of positivism. 5. The true world, an idea that is of no further use, not even an obligation, now an obsolete, superfluous idea, consequently a refuted idea. Let's get rid of it. Bright day, breakfast, return of bon sang and cheerfulness. Plato blushes in shame, pandemonium of all free spirits. 6. The true world is gone. Which world is left? The illusory one, perhaps? But no, we got rid of the illusory world along with the true one. Noon, moment of shortest shadow, end of longest error, high point of humanity, insipid Zarathustra. And so that's the entire passage. So now we'll go through the passage part by part, starting with part one. The true world, attainable for a man who is wise, pious, virtuous. He lives in it. He is it. Oldest form of the idea, relatively coherent, simple, convincing. 
paraphrase of the proposition, I, Plato, am the truth. So to explain this, we will begin in ancient Greece. The first inkling of the true world emerges. It is not quite metaphysical yet at this stage. It is more of a moral claim, and it is best explained by looking at the concept of eudaimonia. Eudaimonia is an ancient Greek word. It doesn't have an easily translatable English meaning, but it means, roughly speaking, something like happiness, but true happiness. You know, happiness in the sense of flourishing, well-being, health. Um, and, you know, most of all, for the philosophers like Plato, it was achieved by virtue. And it's, it's synonymous with the perfection of virtue in some sense. And so it is a, it's an all-encompassing type of happiness. Happiness in one's own uh, excellence and perfection. Um, and so Nietzsche emphasizes that Plato is the truth. Because the ethical framework based on virtue is about coming to embody what is virtuous. You know, rather than the emphasis on consequences, which is in moral consequentialism, or on moral intentions, which is the type of ethics known as deontology, virtue ethics focuses on the character of the moral person. And in Platonic philosophy, in some sense, every virtue is intimately tied to every other virtue. And so we might say that it is impossible for a man to embody, say, true grace or true compassion or true bravery without also embodying the truth without acting truthfully and seeking to know the truth. This is contained in the maxim, know thyself. So as for how the truth is only in possession of the good man, Plato dramatized this in his allegory of the cave, which is one of his most celebrated contributions to philosophy. Plato's analogy in the cave is that human beings, as we follow our sense data to sketch a picture of the world, are like people merely watching shadows on a cave wall. Shadows are cast by actual objects and a light source outside, you know, the sunlight. But the actual objects are hidden from the vision of those in the cave. They're only able to see the shadows cast by them, projected onto the wall. And so wisdom is attained by one who manages to escape from the cave, to perceive that the shadows are not the true reality, but just our flawed perception of it. The real reality is outside in the sunlight, something which is kept from most men, by their lack of virtue or their lack of learning, which is really remembering, relinking. The shadows correspond to the representations we create in our head for understanding reality, and the sun shining outside is the true world. And what is this true world? Does Plato tell, tell us anything about it? Well, yes, the true world is the world of the forms in Plato's ideology. Our world of the senses merely represents these forms as imitations. The, the man of wisdom recognizes that what we perceive is, a, is an approximation. The natural world is therefore a mere illusion. The perceptions of the senses are at best a facsimile of the truth, they're not the entire truth. And Plato was not the only um, Greek philosopher who felt this way. Um, Heraclitus viewed the world as an ever-living, you know, ever-dynamic uh, fire, to the extent that objects appear to us as substantial, separate things, this is only an illusion in the Heraclitian view. Parmenides, on the other hand, argued that all motion was an illusion. He claimed that change was impossible and said reality was not, it's not like the living dynamic fire at all, but a rigid, solid, unchanging earth. He compares it to the element of earth in, instead. And even the earliest, you know, pre-Socratic philosopher, um, 
you know, so of course, Socrates is not really the first philosopher. There were philosophers before him. It's just that academics have categorized them as being more similar to religious figures than true philosophers, whatever that might mean. Um, but anyway, the, the earliest pre-Socratic philosopher was Thales, um, who, who argued, again, that everything was made of a more basic element. In his case, he argued everything's water. So objects and beings, as they appear to us, are quite literally reformulations or rarefied forms of water. So this idea of the world as it really is, not being as it appears, is not limited to Plato. But Plato, unlike all these other figures, he, he's he's like uh, Socrates, he's op he's offering some sort of idea of the virtuous man transcending the illusions of the world and gaining some sort of insight or wisdom that allows him to live in the true world. So the true world is not just a notion that reality might appear one way and actually be another way, but that there is a true world that is correlated with goodness. And so what we have here is the start of a very important you know, idea that goes hand in hand with the true world and the world of appearances, which is mind and body dualism. You can see this in late antiquity in the form of the Stoics. Stoicism is based on the notion that the conscious mind can assert control over the desires of the body, that the conscious intellect can intervene and control the unconscious impulses, the biological urges and the learned habits. Epictetus, for example, he wrote of the passions as antithetical to reason, as something that had to be mastered. He wrote, you are a little soul carrying a corpse. In short, the idea of virtue as the gateway to the truth through human effort is deeply related to this idea of being a mind driving a body, of reason governing the passions. And from this jumping off point, we can understand Nietzsche's next step, which I'll now read. Two, the true world, unattainable for now, but promised to the man who is wise, pious, virtuous, to the sinner who repents. Progress of the idea, it gets trickier, subtler, less comprehensible, it becomes female, it becomes Christian. So what we have here is Nietzsche's allegation that Christianity is derived from Socrates and Plato. Now, obviously, the Christian religion has many sources historically. There is, you know, Judaism, you know, the, the Torah or the Old Testament, which is basically very similar to the Torah. It forms the first half of the Christian dual canon. There are beliefs of, you know, the religions and philosophies of ancient Rome in which the nation in which Christianity gestated. And there are the mystical and Gnostic beliefs of, you know, the Greeks. But Nietzsche argues that Platonism... And the idea of the true world as attainable only by the virtuous man is carried on and transformed in Christianity. And this is why he writes in the preface to Beyond Good and Evil that Platonism, um, that Christianity is Platonism for the people. And what he means by this is that the teachings of Socrates and Plato were previously influential among philosophers and scholars, perhaps, uh, you know, not among the whole the, the common man, right? But once it mutated and became part of Christianity, it could spread like a virus among the general populace, and that is exactly what it did. And so certainly the, the mind-body dualism is, as it, it attains a literalist and dogmatic form in Christianity. For in Christianity, one has an immortal soul. I mentioned Descartes earlier. He is a great example of how this idea from Christianity entered 
the Enlightenment philosophical discourse. Um, you know, Descartes is, is known uh, not just for I think, therefore I am, but for what is called Cartesian dualism, which is the separation of mind and body, as we discussed. And in his preface to the faculty at Sorbonne, uh, Descartes says there is no distinction between the mind and the immortal soul. He, he also doubts the existence of the physical world through his, his meditations. He ultimately concludes the only justification for existence is a loving God. So that's an example of how these metaphysical positions, um, you know, the, the separation of mind and body, the separation of the true world and the world of appearance was not limited to the seminary. It did influence the philosophical schools in Europe even if Descartes did put it into a more secular context. And so to return to the, the soul, um, the soul is seen in Christianity as not just separate from the body, from the physical form, which, you know, in reality, your physical form, your body, it contains your brain, which is your actual mind. It's the physical grounding of what your mind is. But in Christianity, actually, the soul is completely diametrically opposed to the body. You know, your mind, your consciousness is not actually generated by your brain. It may inhabit your brain, so to speak, but the true you, the true person is immaterial and cannot be damaged or reduced or, or altered in any way by the physical world, really. Um, and so in Christianity, the flesh is sinful because of original sin. And the soul, meanwhile, it's this immaterial thing. It's a sort of magical thing. And it serves ideologically, metaphysically, as a, a core. It's a center to one's personality. It's the source of their free will, of their morality. It's the very essence of the human being. Um, and it's, it's a, you know, that's a gift from God. It's divine. Whereas the flesh is afflicted with the original sin, and that means it's inherently sinful. It's aimed at sin at all times. The physical world, in Christian terms, is of the devil. Um, it's only through the grace of God that man can even hope to resist sinning. And St. Paul makes this very clear in his letters to the Romans. And I'm going to quote a sort of excerpt from Romans 15 through 20. Um, quote, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so, you know, end quote, uh, Paul laments that he wishes to do good, but still gives in to temptation, and he cannot find out how to do the good, and ultimately concludes it's the sinful flesh that inhibits his goodwill. If only the body would obey the mind. But as Christianity, of course, teaches, no man can truly and completely obey the laws of God because of the curse of original sin, as we mentioned. So man must simply throw himself on the mercy of God and rely on God's grace. Um, he must be repentant of his sin, not you know, it's not possible to be virtuous in the Greek sense under this ideology. Um, you can, the most virtuous thing is to be a sinner who repents. And so if we pay attention here, this is the development from step one to step two in the metaphysical era that Nietzsche is describing and charting the course of. 
First, the good man has access to the true world through virtue. You can attain the wisdom that causes the scales to fall from your eyes and you can live in truth. You can be embody the truth, rather. But Christianity asserts that no man is truly good. So how can man live in truth? Well, he can't. The only thing he can do is repent. So where has the true world gone in this formulation? The answer is that the true world has been projected now onto a world beyond. In the case of Christianity, yes, in one sense, it is heaven. But more importantly, it's not, it's not just the promise of a good, pleasant existence in the afterlife. Um, it's not, the, the world beyond, the true world, is not just the afterlife. It's the assertion that there is a dominant universe, God and his kingdom, if you will, um, that, that governs our universe, which is a contingent universe. The contingent universe is the one we live in, but it's a world of imperfection. And since no man can achieve perfection, only God can, we can only become good by repenting and by being shepherded into this true world by the benevolence of this perfection. And the only way to get there, the only time when we leave this world, is death. And so the need for this dominant universe, it does, in, in the literalist form and the widespread understanding of people, become projected onto what happens after life and after you die. And so we see how the true world has evolved from a conception of a more of 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 insight of wisdom of virtue that allows you to perceive a more real wor- wor- version of the world of the world that we actually live in to a truly separate and distinct plane of existence that is only available to you after death and with that we will go to 3 the true world unattainable unprovable unpromisable but the very thought of it, a consolation, an obligation, an imperative. Basically, the old sun, but through fog and skepticism, the idea becomes elusive, pale, Nordic, Konigsbergian. Now, this section directly addresses Immanuel Kant. And this is another figure we talked about earlier. And when, when Nietzsche calls this step in the metaphysical error Konigsbergian, he is referencing Kant because Kant was a philosopher from Konigsberg, and um, which, I, if I recall correctly, Kant never left there for his whole life. He was, as we said before, one of the most influential philosophers who inaugurated a new era of philosophy and elevated German philosophy to the foremost. Uh, they were they were the in the wake of Kant and Goethe and, and a lot of these really astounding great literary figures and philosophical and scientific figures, Europe in the 1800s, or Germany in 1800s was really at the forefront of a lot of the intellectual and scholarly accomplishments of Europe. And Kant was troubled by the limits of empiricism, as they'd so far been determined. In the, you know, aforementioned limitations of representing the world through our sense faculties, In his critique of pure reason, Kant showed that the limits of human intellect were drawn within the realm of phenomena, the natural world, the world of sense data, basically. We construct representations of phenomena we encounter in our mind's eye, but our our reason, just pure reason itself, cannot lead us to conclusions about the noumenal world. Other than that, it, it exists. And so the German philosophers after Kant wondered whether we can even say anything about the second world, this true world, 
the noumenal world. Neo-Kantians, including some physicists and biologists, so people who were outside of just simply philosophy, attempted to do experiments based on these philosophical ideas. So if the reality we experience is only a representation created by sense organs, then different sense organs of different organisms should lead them to construct a different reality, to represent a different reality. But, you know, and, and people such as von Himholtz did this, like studying the sense organs, like I'm going to study the reaction, like when I, you know, expose light to various, like, you know, fish and eels or whatever. Um, they would do, they would do these experiments trying to find out anything that they could. But the, the thing is, whatever knowledge we learn about this process still comes to us through our own senses. It seems inescapable that as much as we can learn about the phenomenal world, the noumenon is always out of our grasp. And so, indeed, Kant himself tried to delineate the limits of reason to synthesize the positions of rationalism and empiricism. But the noumenon in this formulation comes to feel farther and farther away. As Nietzsche writes in this section, um, it's elusive and pale. The old sun, but through the fog and skepticism. Nietzsche's pointing out how our demand for knowledge basically showed us the limitations of knowledge. And now we are aware that ultimately, in spite of whatever faith we may have, we cannot say anything at all about the so-called true world. And so perhaps why he invokes Nordic in this passage is to hint at, at, at Kierkegaard. You know, I know that the, there was a Dane named, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, I would guess like Jorg Brandes. Um, he had recommended to Nietzsche that he read Kierkegaard, but I'm not sure how much Nietzsche actually knew about Kierkegaard. Um, whether this statement in step three is just a dig at the Nordics or what Nietzsche might have seen as the Nordic mentality. But, um, you know, considering Kierkegaard for a moment, he argued famously the only means of man, you know, reunited with the true world, to put it in the same terms we've been using, is by the leap of faith, which Kierkegaard fully realizes is absurd and terrifying. It's a true leap of faith. It's scary. So perhaps we can summarize the evolution from step two to step three saying that we've recognized the true world as ultimately only available through irrationality. That reason itself cannot get you there. And so while we are promised this true world after death, you know, in a world beyond, we, we, you know, which is the afterlife, we cannot really know that that is true except through faith or irrationality. And thus philosophy, which is the pursuit of wisdom, has revealed to us that it is not through the pursuit of wisdom that we attain what is most valuable to us. For the true world has become the source of ultimate value in the European psyche, which obviously means a, a contradiction now runs through the heart of the philosophical project. Part four. The true world? Unattainable. At any rate, unattained. And as unattained, also unknown. Consequently, not consoling, redeeming, obligating either. How could we have obligations to something unknown? Gray morning, first yawn of reason, cockcrow of positivism. So the fact that man recognizes that he's not any closer to the truth from all of his attempts to do metaphysical philosophy means that the true world over time starts to lose its power. It, it ceases to entice us the way that it once did. How can it obligate us to anything or offer us redemption? And here we have the first signs of atheism, of, 
of God in the old church dogmas becoming questionable. And that's it's the big thing. It's not so much that, um, you know, Nietzsche never bothered with arguments of disproving God. Um, I mean, maybe a little bit. He dabbled in in sort of bringing up contradictions in, in the dogmas and religious exegesis of texts and things of that nature. But um, he's not so much concerned with that. He, he more just invokes the idea that God is now questionable, whereas it was before unquestionable and, and bringing up the sort of metaphysical power of an unquestioned first assumption and, and the, the danger of it becoming questionable. And so I think step four roughly corresponds in addition to, you know, positivism, which will, you know, it, it corresponds to Schopenhauer, who was one of Nietzsche's biggest influences and who was um, also in the tradition of Immanuel Kant, another German philosopher. Schopenhauer was a pessimist, or speaking more broadly, he was a he was a cosmic pessimist. He did not believe in a personal creator God. He rejected Christianity, but he did adopt um, Buddhism. He called himself a Buddhaist, and he saw Buddhism as providing the solution to the central problem of existence. And that problem for Schopenhauer is that existence, as he wrote swings like a pendulum between pain and boredom. He believes all happiness is transitory, whereas pain is inevitable. He thinks that in absentia of any cosmic destiny for mankind, the best thing possible for us would be to negate the will to live. Because Schopenhauer believed that the will to live was the force that undergirded and drove all human existence. It's it's this that drives us to continue suffering by chasing after our desires. And those desires either go unfulfilled, in which case we suffer out of deprivation, or we get what we want and we're sated for a time, only to have desire grip us once again. And it is only by, it's only by being fully liberated from these drives that man can achieve anything close to what we might call peace. Schopenhauer was advised by you know, his mentor to only read Plato and Kant. He said that was the only important philosophy to read. And it seems that he assented to this advice almost totally. And he therefore fits perfectly into this progression that we're charting out of the steps of the metaphysical error, which begins in step one with Plato, and then transitions to Christianity, and then is transformed again with the help of Kant in step three. And then Schopenhauer, writing after Kant, fully accepts the consequences of an existence in which the noumenon is cut off from us. And he writes, um, this is from his his essays, the Paralipomena. Um, there's, a, there's a section called On the Antithesis Between the Thing in Itself and Appearances. And I quote Schopenhauer, Just as we know merely the surface, but not the great solid mass of the interior of the globe, so too we know empirically of the things and of the world generally nothing but their appearance, i.e. the surface. The precise knowledge of these things is physics in the broadest sense of the word. End quote. So physics here, again, that's the knowledge of the world of appearances. But there is still this lingering sense that there is this true world beneath the surface that is what we speak of when we speak of metaphysics. But we know nothing of it, and our, our, our sense of alienation from this true world is palpable. And I think that is why this is a gray morning for Nietzsche, and why he brings up the cockro of positivism. Positivism was the idea that the only 
worthwhile propositions about reality are those which can be proved by scientific experiment, which is to say we abandon the metaphysical speculation of what is at this point, you know, it's no more than an abstract concept. And we turn our attention to what Schopenhauer calls physics. We turn from metaphysics to physics, the laws of the world of appearance and the world of experience. And while Nietzsche is not a positivist, perhaps this is, this is their cockroach. It's the thing that will wake us up. And so Kant, you know, he famously said that reading the skeptic, um, the, the, he, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, it woke him from his dogmatic slumber. So too, maybe this complete alienation from the true world and turning our attention instead to the world of appearances and its traits and laws will wake us up from our dogmatic slumber and our enchantment with this metaphysical error. And so I see it as sort of like, um, you know, perhaps you've heard the term false dawn. It's where like the true dawn is when the sun comes over the horizon. But before that, you can see, um, you can see the light um, of the sun before the sun starts to crest over the horizon. And, you know, um, that's often when the cocks begin to crow. So that's why I think he's saying it's a gray morning. I don't think he's necessarily saying it's a foggy morning. I think he's saying it's a false dawn. Um, so the change from step three to step four is that this metaphysical pursuit has finally been divested of all its value. And that brings us to step five. Five, the true world, an idea that is of no further use, not even an obligation, now an obsolete, superfluous idea, consequently a refuted idea. Let's get rid of it. Bright day, breakfast, return of bon sang and cheerfulness, Plato blushes in shame, pandemonium of all free spirits. So, part five. My argument is that this is the arrival of Nietzsche. He writes himself into the story. Nietzsche has arrived to announce, among other things, the death of God, for example. What this means is, as we said earlier, that God is no longer believable. It is an obsolete, superfluous idea. Um, you know, and Nietzsche isn't just speaking here of God, but the most famous way of talking about it is the death of God. He's talking about the entire true world, that the truth that was only available to the virtuous man, and then to the sinner who repents, and then as a sort of vague philosophical concept, he has come to announce it has lost all its vitality, all its use, and it can safely be discarded. And so that, you know, the, the, the false dawn is over and this is the true dawn. The, the, all the morning fog clears away. All the morning mist clears away. We've woken up um, after this positivism and the refocusing on the immediate world, the sensory world, rather than the mere concept of a true world. And now it's sunny and bright. Plato blushes in shame, as Nietzsche says, because he was the one who started this long, long philosophical error in motion through, you know, his ideas of the good life, of the allegory of the cave, and so on. But, you know, as, as I pointed out, Plato thought that the, the true world was available to the virtuous man, the, the living, a living person who is um, striving after excellence. They're striving after knowing the truth and embodying the truth. Whereas the, the, once it transitions to Christianity, it becomes a thing that, that is only available to the dead. And then, be, you know, when it gets laundered through our philosophical thinking, it becomes this vague, abstract concept that first motivates us. And then eventually we realize 
um, you know, it, it's not worth anything anymore. But, but I, I guess I just bring that up to say Plato would have not agreed with the later incarnations of this idea. So that's, I think, why he's blushing in shame in Nietzsche's view, you know. And so the, over these long repeated mutations as this idea took hold, eventually we saw this long error live out its whole life and die. Maybe you could even say it just died a natural death. And Nietzsche is simply there to announce that it has died. He, he calls it the pandemonium of free spirits also. You know, the free spirit is a sort of character or, or a type of thinker that Nietzsche wrote about often, and he's somewhat identified with. And, and notably, he says in The Gay Science that while many people still stuck in the old religious worldview will not even perceive the death of God, and when they finally do, you know, they'll be perhaps inconsolable, distraught, confused, you know, feel unmoored. The free spirit, on the other hand, will react with exuberance and will perceive that in spite of the danger of the disappearance of the metaphysical grounding of society, there is nevertheless, there's now a plenitude of opportunities that the creative individual look to the death of this metaphysical error as a new beginning. And so that's why it's a pandemonium of free spirits. It's time for all this creative activity of the truly free uh, creators of values to do their work now. Um, you know, the old God is dead, the old true world is dead, and we can move on. And so the transition from step four to step five is about the dawn of a new age. It's quite simply, this is the point where the long error dies. And so now we are entering the what I spoke of at the beginning, the the post metaphysical era era of mankind, the the post true world style of philosophy and thinking and living, and so what could part six then be about? And so we'll go to part six. Six, the true world is gone. Which world is left? The illusory one, perhaps. But no. We got rid of the illusory world along with the true one. Noon, moment of shortest shadow, end of longest error, high point of humanity, insipid Zarathustra. And so here we are, and step six takes place, I believe, in the future. It's after Nietzsche. So he, he liked, Nietzsche liked to herald things. He liked to make predictions about the course of history in the course of philosophy and the course of thinking. And he wrote many times that he was writing for a new breed of philosophers of the future, people who were yet to come up in prominence. And so he is predicting that after him, the death of the true world will finally be comprehended and felt. And so what is the result? We got rid of the illusory world along with the true world. So the world of the senses is now no longer considered illusory, it's no longer conceived of that way. Um, it's not reified into an essentialized picture based on own, Nietzsche's own time and place and inclinations either, though. You know, rather, Nietzsche's post-metaphysical world, I would argue it would be the, the acceptance of the immediate sensory realities as real. The recognition that any suggestion that our senses are somehow lying to us this is not simply a skeptical exercise in raising questions, but rather it requires that you posit the existence of a whole additional reality. Because if my senses are feeding me a false reality, then there must be a real reality behind things. 
And so Nietzsche is more or less saying that the activity of creating these worlds beyond is fundamentally obsolete. And the people who might pose as simply skeptics raising questions about the nature of the world are really just creating these, they're, they're, they're recapitulating to this fable of a true world. And, you know, so Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's quest or his, his hope is that we can embrace the physical world, the material world, the biological world, the living world. Um, you know, I'm using all these different terms because I don't want to say that Nietzsche is a materialist. He's, there are important differences from like what you might call like, say, scientific materialism and Nietzsche. But I think it conveys the point that he, he's not interested in this splitting of our, the, the life that we live through our experiences and our senses and, and the splitting of that into this concept that there is, well, that could just be an illusion. There's this, this true reality. And, you know, as we get into Nietzsche more over the course of this podcast, you'll see how he locates most of his truth claims about the, about the world um, in terms of our drives or our desires or our values. That what is quote unquote real to us is not so much based on an ontological claim of something being real. Um, you know, real, what we might say an ontological claim is, is which again, that's part of metaphysics, um, you know, the claims about being. That's saying, when you make an ontological claim, you're, you're claiming that something is real independently of our minds or independently of our subjective perception. But, you know, rather, I think Nietzsche's refocusing here. He's saying that the real things, the most significant aspects of our reality are things like judgments, relationships, struggles, goals, and so on. That the entire, frankly, essentialist basis of thinking about reality as a series of objects that have independent existence, um, you know, that is correlated with some sort of true world that is separate from our perception of it, he's saying that that is useless. It's an abstract set of considerations that's completely foreign from everything we care about. So again, what is left is not a false world. It's not a world of mere appearances. What is left is a human world. And in fact, this is the only world that we know. It's the only world we've ever known, that we ever will know. It is the only immediate reality we experience. It's the world of love, hate, pain, pleasure, you know, beauty, ugliness, good, evil, hot, cold, high, low, stress, happiness, life, death, world of humanity. Um, you know, th that's reality to Nietzsche. And there's no, those things don't exist in a true world. They exist in our world, in the human world. And so the end of part six here, he references Zarathustra. Now Zarathustra, he appears in the, the work, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and he's referenced in many places in Nietzsche's work. And he is another character of Nietzsche's. Zarathustra is his prophet, and he's the one who, he reveals the philosophy of the future. And here he's associated with noon what Nietzsche calls the high point of humanity. So noon is the high point of the sun in the sky. And here, the arrival of Zarathustra, this prophet of the future, that's the high point of humanity. And so in the wake of these, these metaphysical suppositions dying off about, you know, true world and the mind-body dualism and the dominant reality controlling our contingent reality and so on and so on and so on. 
In the wake of all that fading away, when we're no longer thinking in those terms, Zarathustra can emerge, and thus insipid Zarathustra, or to translate begin, you know, the beginning of Zarathustra. He comes onto the stage. And so that's, that's it. That's the whole passage. These six little parts, aphoristic parts, and every one of them is packed with a lot of meaning. And there's probably a lot of meaning in this passage that I didn't even bring up in this entire hour-long podcast. And so if you like this episode and you see some other interpretation of this passage, or even if you have a completely different one, you think I'm totally wrong, you know, please comment or, or let me know. Let me know what you think. Um, you know, and I think you'll find if you're new to Nietzsche and maybe coming to this podcast because you have just started out reading Nietzsche, you'll discover that he has a knack for writing sentences and aphorisms that contain an incredible amount of meaning packed into a, a single idea or a single phrase. And so here Nietzsche gives what I would call a whole history of philosophy or of Western philosophy of what he sees in one fatal problem in our philosophical thinking and how that problem in his view can and will be overcome. And so I think, uh, you know, with that, we'll end the first, uh, first episode. Um, there's a lot more I could talk about, but that's, that's why we're going to have more episodes and there are no, no plans to include guests at this point. Um, Right now, it's looking like a solo affair, but that may change in the future, depending on whether that's you know gets a following or what have you. And so, while I said at the beginning I didn't think it was a good idea to just go through Nietzsche book for book, you know, again, I might eventually do a deep dive on the texts, probably not in chronological order, but we'll see how it goes. For now, I think the first number of episodes, I, I will focus on some idea, some theme, or some philosophical thread where I draw, you know, on passages and ideas from across Nietzsche's work, or I'll do something like this and just zero in on one, one like aspect or one passage. So I think that'll be the most interesting way to approach the topic. Um, so that's all everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to like, and subscribe and, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's all walk out of the cave and into the sunshine. I think, I think it's time for Zarathustra to begin. I think we are the philosophers of the future that he was writing to. Goodbye.